Good evening. Facebook and Instagram go dark worldwide. Biden says its debt limit, its Congress's debt limit must be suspended and America's disappeared 20 years after 9-11. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, October 4th, 2021. Facebook along with its Instagram and WhatsApp platforms, suffered a worldwide outage Monday that's extended more than three hours. It was uh, still down as uh, just a few moments ago when I checked. Facebook's internal systems used by employees also went down, and service, as reported, has not yet been restored. The company didn't say what might be causing the outage, which began around 11.40 a.m. Eastern time. Websites and apps often suffer outages of varying size and duration, but hours-long global disruptions are rare. Facebook's only public comment so far was a tweet in which it acknowledged that some people are having trouble accessing the Facebook app and that it was working on restoring access. Instagram head Adam Masseri tweeted that it feels like a snow day. Facebook's uh, Facebook has nearly 3 billion users with a B, and many use the service as a sole means of communication. The outage risks disrupting businesses worldwide, and its cause remains unclear. Last night, Facebook whistler, uh, meanwhile, last night, Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen, and her name was made public then, detailed how the company allegedly prioritized profit over public safety and the well-being of children who use the app. Among the revelations, Facebook knows its service contributes to eating disorders and increases suicidal thoughts in young girls. Today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that it's just the most recent knock against the social media giant. The latest in a series of revelations about social media platforms uh, that make clear that self-regulation is not working. Uh, That's long been the president's view and been the view of this administration. Uh, They validate the significant concern that the president and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have expressed about how social media giants operate and the power they've amassed. Uh, Reports in recent weeks, and I think obviously the whistleblower was uh, came forward last night in the in the report, but about efforts to attract young users and negative effects on teenagers mental health are certainly troubling they're hardly isolated incidents and so uh, our uh, our effort is going to be continue to uh, support fundamental reforms efforts to address these issues obviously that would be up to the purview of Congress but certainly uh, we view these as a continuing uh, in a series of revelations about the power of these platforms and that's Jen Psaki Haugen told 60 Minutes, Scott Pelley, the thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And in more news, President Joe Biden on Monday, that's today, urged Republican senators to get out of the way and let Democrats suspend the nation's debt limit, hoping to keep the U.S. government from bumping dangerously close to a credit default as Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell refuses to lend his party's help. This is really important to know. Raising the debt limit is about paying off our old debts. There's nothing to do with any new spending. Okay, James Paul. Uh, Yeah, are you available to talk for a few minutes about this? For building back better. Zero. Zero. Both of which I might add are paid for. So if we're going to make good on what's already been approved by previous Congresses and previous presidents and parties, we have to pay for it. Social Security benefits, the American people are promised, salaries for servicemen and women, benefits for veterans. We're going to have to raise the debt limit if we're going to meet those obligations. And raising the debt limit is usually a bipartisan undertaking. 
and it should be. That's what is not happening today. The reason we have to raise the debt limit is in part because of the reckless tax and spending policies under the previous Trump administration. In four years, they incurred, they incurred nearly $8 trillion. In four years, $8 trillion in additional debt. In bills, we have to now pay off. That's more than a quarter of the entire debt incurred now outstanding after more than 200 years. And Republicans in Congress raised the debt three times when Donald Trump was president and each time with Democrat support. But now they won't raise it, even though they're responsible for more than $8 trillion in bills incurred in four years under the previous administration. That's what we'd be paying off. They won't raise it, even though defaulting on the debt would lead to a self-inflicted wound that takes our economy over a cliff and risks jobs and retirement savings, Social Security benefits, salaries for service members, benefits for veterans, and so much more. A failure to raise the debt limit will call into question Congress's willingness to meet our obligations that we've already incurred. Not new ones, we've already incurred. This is going to undermine the safety of U.S. Treasury securities and will threaten the reserve status of the dollar as the world's currency. Biden's criticism came with Congress facing an October 18th deadline to allow for more borrowing to keep the government operating after having accrued a public total public debt of twenty eight point four trillion dollars. The House has passed a measure to suspend the debt limit, but McConnell is forcing Senate Democrats into a cumbersome process that could drag on and approach the deadline with little margin for error. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the president who has taken the side of progressives in the budget fight will meet with those progressives and their caucus today. The president is going to have a virtual meeting with a number of progressive House members later this afternoon in order to have a discussion about the path forward, which includes the recognition that this package is going to be smaller than originally proposed. What he wants to hear from them is what their priorities are, what their bottom lines are, so he can play a constructive role in moving things forward. I would expect that later this week he'll have probably another virtual meeting with members who might consider themselves more moderate or however you want to define them. They're all out of session this week as you know, so hence that's why the meetings are virtual. We have been in touch or we've stayed in touch with staff and a range of, of members over the course of the weekend uh, as we work to continue to make progress. But I don't have any additional updates from Senator Manchin or Senator Sinema at this point. Both Biden and McConnell have promised that the country will avoid default, yet the public fight and political posturing risks an economic meltdown. Senate Majority Leader's, uh, Leader Chuck Schumer and his GOP counterpart, Mitch McConnell, debated the measure on the Senate floor. Over the past few months, both chambers have dedicated themselves to passing two transformative, once-in-a-generation pieces of legislation, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the Build Back Better Agenda. Doing big things in Congress is always hard, but we didn't choose elected, we, but we didn't choose elected office just to pursue the easy things. In the days and weeks to come, Senate Democrats will remain focused on passing the agenda we promised, no matter how hard the task. If we work to find a legislative sweet spot that we can all support, then we will succeed. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Our new legislative goal must be to get both the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better agenda done by the end of October. The reason is simple. 
The infrastructure bill for all its historic investments is also a reauthorization of the Highway Trust Fund. Republican leader. I want to begin today with a quotation. Quote, because this massive accumulation of debt was predicted, because it was foreseeable, because it was unnecessary, because it was the result of willful and reckless disregard for the warnings that were given, and for the fundamentals of economic management, I'm voting against the debt limit increase. Now, Madam President, that was then Senator Joe Biden in March of 2006, right before every single Democratic senator voted against raising the debt limit and made a unified Republican government do it alone. And as I reminded the president in a letter just this morning, his sentiments then are our sentiments now. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has projected the government will exhaust its cash reserves on October 18th, an event she says would likely trigger a financial crisis and economic recession. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer warned today that it would be hazardous for the economy to come anywhere near that deadline. We're going to get to Senator Sinema's adventure in the Arizona State University bathroom, which uh, is uh, all over the Internet, if you can get on the Internet after the outage at Facebook. But uh, we're going to jump ahead because we have a guest online. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's office has sought to justify his use of offshore companies as protecting him against pro-Russian forces. That follows leaked revelations in a group of documents called the Pandora Papers. The files were obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and published on Sunday among their many claims that Zelensky and his partners established a network of offshore companies back in 2012. They're based on documents leaked to the ICIJ and exposed the offshore dealings of kings, presidents and ministers, prime ministers, including King Jordan's King Abdullah II, Czech Prime Minister Andrzej Babis and Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. It also shows that the United States has risen as one of the main areas in the world for parking your money offline. To talk about that, we have Jim Henry, who's a, a specialist on uh, people who try and get out from paying their taxes, the billionaires who park them offshore so as to avoid fair taxation. He joins us live on the phone. Jim, you there? What are these Paradise Papers and what are some of the things we've discovered? And is there anything that that's new here? Well, there's an extraordinary size of this leak. It's uh, something like 14 service providers, uh, you know, something like 85 different jurisdictions this time. Uh, this is the fourth leak since 2016. The first was the Panama Papers, which was only one small Panamanian law firm. Um, you know, what we're finding out here is just, it's kind of the banality of exposés. We've, we've been through this before. But this time around, this is certainly the largest leak that we've ever had um you know a lot of the people that are involved here there's something like 332 politicians around the world that turns out have got uh offshore accounts uh or trusts uh many of which were not declared to their home governments as required in many countries um, there's a lot of old stuff here there's a lot of um you know cases where we don't have the exact numbers but it's a pretty big deal, and I think it underscores the fact that, hey, you know, I've been doing research on offshore havens since 1979, 
And uh, we still have this problem. We, we, you know, back then there was about 15 havens of any significance. Now we have more than 133. And this stuff keeps going. $50 trillion offshore of private wealth that basically is uh, largely untaxed. And, you know, we have all these uh, fairly senior people in governments, uh, you know, who are who are raking it in and then stashing it offshore. Um that's but in this case, case, wasn't it onshore as well, as far as the United onshore States? Onshore in the sense that the United States, uh, traditionally, we thought of as not being a haven. Actually, it's been quite a haven for a lot of uh, offshore investors who are able to invest here tax-free if they're non-resident aliens, um, you know, since, the, uh, since 1921. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we have uh, increasing use of uh, now – 50 U.S. states that have uh, LLCs where there's no beneficial ownership registration. 13 states like South Dakota uh, have these ironclad asset protection trusts that are as good as anything, you know, you could find uh, in the Cook Islands or elsewhere. So, in you know, t- South Dakota turned up in this uh, leak as having something like 85 different trusts that we had foreign investors putting money in South Dakota. Now, the only reason you go into South Dakota, that's a big jurisdiction for Citibank. And so I expect a lot of people were coming by way of uh, Panama's uh, law firms and, and Citibank into South Dakota. But, you know, what does this say about our uh, tax system in America? I mean, they're complaining right now there's not enough money to pay the debts of the United States. And you're saying that the money is there. Well, I think that's a kind of a different question we have tons of capital around the world that's basically not paying any taxes that's a property of people who don't you know some of it is in the united states i would say most of that is in uh probably in europe and switzerland um but yeah there's been increasing inflows into real estate in particularly the united states in the last decade uh much of it is owned by these offshore uh investors and folks who are basically uh, taking advantage of the fact that we have a lot of financial secrecy and, um, you know, sort of modest tax rates for offshore investors here. But I, I don't want to link this up with our own debt crisis. The, the, the debt crisis that's emerging in Washington is a, a self-inflicted wound on the part of these two parties that are basically, you know, refusing to to mediate. It's, it's like the worst possible marriage breakup that you've ever seen and i just uh you know i just would encourage them to get wise nobody in the world wants the united states to default on their debt and 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 our politicians least of all should be in favor of that but that's it's like a a game of chicken um you know i think what the republican party basically figured out was that they could put a squeeze on biden because if they won't raise the debt and he can't get a deal between in his own party between the spenders uh, who are progressives and the uh, the folks who want to uh, keep taxes down, the Sinema uh, and uh, Mansion from West Virginia, then he's going to have to borrow to pay for you know the, the spending. So, you know, this is all a triangulation play on the part of the Republicans to put him in this box. But anyway, that's very different. The Panama Papers and these papers, the Pandora Papers, are kind of a continuing story about how people all over the planet want to put their money outside of their home countries. 
the Ukrainian prime minister, I actually have some sympathy for because, you know, he was a very successful comic before he became prime minister. And he had all these royalties uh, that he was accumulating. And so when you think of his investment problem, you know, the last place in the world that you would want to invest is in the Ukraine. So, I mean, it's war torn. It's got Putin as an enemy. It's notoriously it's riddled with corruption, kleptocracy. And so it's it makes no sense for, to, for us to be coming down on him for, you know, necessarily <laughs> moving money abroad as long as he is not stealing it, which is always a question in the Ukraine. But I think in this case, we can trace it back to where he actually got the money from. So the point is, developing countries in general have a problem of trying to attract investment and to get people to invest in their own countries. Uh, they also have enormous corruption problems and tax dodging that goes on, and that needs to be curtailed. That's Thank you, Jim Henry, for joining us here on WBAI. Uh, the, uh, par- the Paradise Papers release led to a comment from the White House press secretary today, and we heard from her earlier. Broadly speaking, the president uh, is committed to bringing additional transparency to the United States, the U.S. and international financial systems. And you can see that in policies he's proposed and supported um, over the course of his presidency and even prior to that. In June, uh, he issued a memorandum establishing fighting corruption as a core national security of core uh, national security interest. And through work responsive to this memorandum, the government, we have elevated efforts to curb illicit and opaque financial uh, transactions at home and abroad, including by reducing offshore financial secrecy, robustly implementing federal law requiring U.S. companies to report their beneficial owner to the Department of Treasury, and as necessary, identifying the need for new reforms. He's also pledged to work with partners and allies to address issues such as the abuse of shell companies and money laundering through real estate transactions, something that we've certainly seen and was a part of this reporting. And I'd also note that last year, Congress came together in a bipartisan fashion to direct the Treasury Department to develop a beneficial ownership data that will meaningfully increase transparency and accountability. If you look at the president's proposals in the Build Back Better agenda, he has been clear he wants to make the tax system more fair, wants to crack down on people who are not paying their fair share, whether they are businesses or whether they are individuals. That has been central to his policies, his proposals, and central to what he's fighting for in Congress right now. And that's Jen Psaki. We're going to move on to the next story. Related news, the sounds of flushing toilets were in the background as a group of protesters at Arizona University, as told in a video posted to Twitter Sunday by the social group Living United for Change in Arizona. Uh, youth organizers confronted Kristen Cinema, the United States senator from Arizona, on the campus where the freshman senator has taught since 2003. The protesters followed Cinema to the bathroom and berated her about her opposition to Biden's budget plan. Okay, I'll be back. Sit down, we want to talk to you real quick. Can we talk to you real quick? Hi, actually, I am heading out. But um, right now is a real moment that our people need in order for us to be able to talk about what's really happening. We need a Build Back Better plan right now. We, we knocked on the door first. We need solutions to the Build Back Better plan. We have the solutions that we need. We knocked on doors for you to get you elected, and just how we got you elected, we can get you out of office if you don't support what you promised us. We need seven million citizenship for seven million. We need the double that better time right now. My name is Blanca. I was brought here to the United States when I was three years old, and 
And in 2010, my grandparents both got deported because of SB 1070. And I'm here because I definitely believe that we need a pathway to citizenship. My grandfather passed away two weeks ago, and I was not able to go to Mexico and visit him because there is no pathway to citizenship. And if we have the opportunity to pass it right now, then we need to do it because there's millions of undocumented people just like me who share the same story or even worse things that happen to them because of SB 1070 and because of anti-immigrant legislation. And this is the opportunity to pass it right now and we need you to, we need to hold you accountable to what you told us, what you promised us that you were going to pass when we knocked on doors for you. It's not right. I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor of human trafficking and it's because of the lack of worker protections that we don't have in the gig economy. I need you to stand by workers. Lots of people who are like me who became homeless and and that was the scene in the bathroom in Arizona State University. Yesterday's behavior is not legitimate protest, Cinema said in a statement. It is unacceptable for activist organizations to instruct their members to jeopardize themselves by engaging in unlawful activities, such as gaining entry to closed private university buildings, disrupting learning environments, and filming students in a restroom. The White House press secretary agreed. I think that's pretty clear that they shouldn't uh, they shouldn't uh, uh, breach the the classroom and make the students feel like their privacy, their intellectually stimulating classroom uh, and their time as students in college is being uh, broached upon. The group stood outside chanting build back better, pass the bill and undocumented, unafraid. And finally, Around New York City in the weeks after the September 11th attacks, as an eerie quiet settled over Ground Zero, South Asian and Arab men started vanishing. Soon, more than 1,000 were arrested in sweeps across the metropolitan area and nationwide. Most were charged only with overstaying visas and deported back to their home countries. But before that happened, many were held in detention for months with little outside contact, especially with their families. Others would live with a different anxiety, forced to sign what was effectively a Muslim registry with no idea what might follow. While the remembrances and memorials of 9-11's 20th anniversary slip into the past, hundreds of Muslim men and their families face difficult 20-year anniversaries of their own. We spoke to Center for Constitutional Rights attorney Rachel Mirpol earlier today about the cases. Well, we did just get a decision from the district court dismissing the final claim in the case that we brought in 2002 and has been going on since then. Also, I think it's just the, you know, the anniversary of 9-11 and the anniversary of the detentions, which, you know, started shortly after 9-11. So right now we're experiencing the anniversaries of, you know, people being disappeared off the streets. I wanted to start with people disappearing. Tell us what happened in the days after 9-11 from from the perspective of the legal guardians. Shortly after 9-11, men began simply disappearing off the streets of New York and New Jersey. And, you know, family members were reaching out to us and to other advocates asking for help finding their loved ones because nobody knew where they had gone. And it was only much later that we came to understand that um, the men were being arrested and held in connection to the terrorism investigation, even when the only basis to suspect them was you know, their ethnicity, their religion, and an anonymous tip or something like that about, you know, Arabs keeping strange hours or Middle Eastern men working in a convenience store. 
most of these men were arrested on civil immigration charges. So they weren't brought before a magistrate the way they would if it were criminal charges. And then when immigration hearings finally did happen, those hearings were closed to the public for all individuals arrested in connection to the 9-11 detentions. Even more than that, um, a policy was put in place at the detention centers to keep the public from learning where the men were being held. So, for example, at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, if the loved one of a detainee called to, you know, ask if their, you know, husband, father was there, if they could come visit, they were actually told, no, this person isn't here, even when that was not the truth. What happened when the family members didn't come home from work or disappeared on their way to the store? I mean, what what did people do? How did they react? Some people, you know, reached out to different advocates, places like the Center for Constitutional Rights, to try to figure out who to call, what to do. And so attorneys and advocates at the Center for Constitutional Rights and, and other organizations started calling the immigration detention centers, calling the police, calling the jails, and were turned away. We're told that the, these people aren't here. We later learned that many of the 9-11 detainees were being held in the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, where they were placed in the most restrictive conditions of confinement that exist in the federal system and, under cover of secrecy, were subjected to systemic physical and verbal abuse. And how did people, how did lawyers finally find out and what kind of defense could these guys get eventually? way that we were really able to find out was persistence by going back time and again, calling time and again. And eventually the detention centers and the MDC started to acknowledge that, yes, indeed, the men were being held there. So the complete secrecy only lasted for the first six weeks or so after 9-11. And then eventually we were able to get in and, and visit some of the men held there. Describe a couple of the people who were in detention. How long were they in detention and what happened to their cases? For example, Yasser and Hani Ibrahim, who were brothers from Egypt living in Brooklyn, were arrested because someone called in a tip that Arab men had a post office box and were sending out money from their post office box. On the basis of that kind of tip, they were arrested. Um, they were held for violation of the immigration law, civil immigration violation, working without authorization. Um, and they were sent to the Metropolitan Detention Center, where they were held in solitary confinement between four to eight months, I believe. The, the younger brother, Hanny, was, was released earlier. Eventually, they were cleared of any connection to terrorism and then removed from the country with no acknowledgement that their detention had been you know, the result of religious and racial profiling and no apology. What happened with the lawsuit? Yes, yeah, so the Center for Constitutional Rights filed the Turkmen lawsuit in 2002 while the detentions were still ongoing and sought accountability for all the individuals who were involved in this program of racial and religious profiling. In 2017, the Supreme Court ruled in our case that individuals who are harmed by constitutional violations at the hands of federal officials cannot sue those high-level officials for damages for what's done to them. The Supreme Court allowed one claim in that case to survive its decision. That was a claim that the men at the Metropolitan Detention Center had been subjected to physical and verbal abuse. Two days before 9-11, just last month, the district court judge in the Turkmen case dismissed the final claim in the case, holding that even when 
prison guards allow detainees under their care to be abused or even facilitate that abuse, the victims of that abuse cannot sue for money damages. What is this, as a legal expert, uh, what's going on in this country that we can uh, tell the the citizens who aren't legal experts to uh, expect? It's a little known fact that when federal officials violate the Constitution, there's no law in place that actually allows for them to be held accountable the way there is when state officials violate the Constitution. This is something that must change if we are going to be a system that respects the law. And that's Rachel Mirpol, Senior Staff Attorney and Associate Director of Legal Training and Education at the Center for Constitutional Rights. She's also the daughter of Robert Mirpol, the younger son of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. And that's some of the news for Monday, October 4th, 2021. The news was uh, was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. It's a little known fact that when federal officials violate the Constitution,